Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. I'm not sure any of us could imagine organizing without social media at this point. To be sure, massive movements have been built in a world without Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, but that isn't the environment we find ourselves in anymore. Someone asked Twitter the other day whether or not social media was an effective tool in activism. We've got names for it, hacktivism or or hashtag activism. But we're not talking about keyboard warriors here. We're talking about really using these mostly free resources to connect people and mobilize them when needed. Because the accessibility and popularity of some of these tools is unmatched and surely can't be ignored. But can it replace meaningful discussions that come from deep canvassing and in-person conversations? Of course not. This means campaigns and movements need to consider their finite resources and strike a balance in terms of how they engage the community. So we called in Matt Dusenberry from the communications firm Smoke and Felt to talk about whether or not we're doing a good job at maximizing what's available to us. He gives out some great advice for those building campaigns and some insight as to why the messaging of the far right seems to gain more traction in these spaces. Welcome to Blueprints, Matt. Can you introduce yourself for the audience? Hello. Thank you for having me, Jessa. Yes, of course. Uh, My name is Matt Dusenberry, and I am the founder of Smoke and Felt. Smoke and Felt is a creative communications firm focusing on progressive politics. And our goal, uh, through our expertise in media, in technology, and storytelling, uh, we aim to elevate progressive messages into movements through the work that we do and the folks that we work with. Uh, We founded in 2017, uh, based out of uh, my own personal experiences freelancing. I've been doing it ever since. Uh, And it's been uh, a wild ride. And I'm really happy to uh, be chatting with you today. I I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I love love the name. It just has has a bit of class, smoke and mirrors kind of um, mystique to it. So uh, yeah, good branding there, my friend. <laughs> in a nutshell, though, like example, when you logged on here, you're talking about how busy you are in the thick of it with the PSAC strike going on. Can you give us an idea what what does Smoke and Felt do for campaigns specifically? Like what are what are you doing right now that's keeping you so busy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the w- the place that uh, Smokingfield came from was to try and help deliver uh, for progressive campaigns and organizers uh, a way for them to uh, reach their audiences, build their organizational prowess, uh, and connect with people on the ground uh, as uh, as new developments were taking place. Uh, and that uh, can be applied in uh, a labor format. That can be applied in uh, certain nonprofit sectors, uh, political campaigns kind of across that spectrum. Um, As we're seeing in the last couple of days and today, uh, we're with uh, the PSAC strike. Um, There's a whole lot going on. Uh, It's a historic moment uh, for the country, uh, to put it mildly. Um, And there are uh, people uh, on the streets uh, uh, demanding that their voices be heard after uh, being mistreated for so long. For Smoke and Felt, uh, we're playing a very, very small role uh, in helping to elevate uh, that, uh, that movement and those messages. So we're working with 
with a number of uh, labor unions uh, and organizations uh, to help them with their communications, to help support uh, and, and get the word out uh, about that. And that includes uh, digital channels, social media, websites, email newsletters, and so on, uh, as well as working uh, with them to help build their capacity for what may come next, uh, not just for this particular uh, instance, uh, but going forward uh, at both the provincial and federal levels. And it's not just big campaigns. Like You helped me on my very first political campaign. What led you to believe there was room for services like this? A lot of the bigger unions have folks in-house that take care of their, their comms, and smaller campaigns often have no budget for anything. But you've clearly found a niche here, and you've seen growth. So where you're filling some void. What was it? Were you looking at people's um, websites for their campaigns and just cringing? <laughs> I mean, look, it's it's tough out there to build a website, uh, but not as tough as it used to be, right? The, the tools are certainly available um, across the spectrum. So whether it's social, web, email, certainly even compared to when uh, I first started doing this in my own capacity a number of years ago, uh, the ability for a single individual to spin up a, a messaging campaign or an email newsletter uh, or a, a Twitter account, although maybe not Twitter these days, um, that uh, that has never been easier. Um, but as I was kind of up and coming, so a little bit of background about myself, uh, I uh, completed uh, graduate school in journalism. And before that, I did uh, a bachelor's in media studies and philosophy. Um, and I studied music as well. So I got a good uh, sense when I was in school about all of these different media pieces and how they interact, how they kind of collide and coalesce and how folks uh, tend to gravitate towards them in different ways. Um, and as part of that, I was able to, uh, I was afforded a lot of leeway to experiment with these different tools. Um, you know, on social media when it was on the ascendance with Facebook and Twitter in particular, uh, and then going on from there with the other uh, channels that uh, you know are familiar with, LinkedIn and so on. Um, when I graduated and started working, uh, I worked in various marketing departments, worked as a journalist for a little while, um, and my sense of things as I kind of evolved in my own career and got uh, a taste of different uh, job prospects was every organization, big or small, had its degrees of difficulty uh, applying these tools, especially since they were so brand new at the time uh, and even still to a certain extent. Each one has its own cultures. Each one has its own interactions, its own kind of technical quirks that need to be sorted through. Um, and a lot of folks in these organizations either didn't know or didn't have the time or didn't care to learn those different things, even though that's where the people were going, whether they were people you wanted to talk with, clients, customers, whatever. At the same time I was doing that, my own personal attention or, or uh, uh appeal was on the political and progressive side in particular. So I was always, you know, mind, like-minded in that regard. Um, when I was going through my BA studies, it was always kind of infused or tinged with this leftist approach to how these networks would be or could be used. And in particular, how they would not be uh, because of the search for uh, an expanding audience and expanding profit that would go along with it, as we've seen that borne out. But I still even if it was a little romanticized, thought that, you know, these tools could be used to bring people together and to, you know, bring those value systems closer to the forefront and enact actual change at the social level. So when I was going through my different career stages in the mid-2010s, uh, I thought to myself that, you know, if I was ever going to 
make a go of something like this, um, it would be, you know, in, in this moment when I was doing a little bit of freelancing on the side for different labor unions and organizations, thought I had a pretty good grasp of what their experiences was like, listening to them tell me what their problems and pain points were when it came to these things. And even though, as you mentioned, a lot of uh, unions, organizations, progressive institutions have communication staff or a coordinator role or something to that effect, they are never quite operating at the way that they could, should, or want to because there are only so many hours in the day, there's any number of things happening all at once, and it can be very uh, difficult to keep all those balls juggling in the air at once. And so the impetus, the thrust for Smoke and Felt uh, came uh, in the lead up uh, and through 2017 um, when I had reached a point where I thought that my own kind of personal understanding and uh, technical ability had crossed a certain threshold. Um, but more importantly, the broader kind of uh, environments of these uh, organizations, labor unions, institutions uh, were, were really in need of being able to utilize these tools uh, in a way that uh, they weren't able to. They weren't able to rise to that occasion in a certain regard. Um, and so I thought the best way for me to do that uh, would be to start an organization that could offer that full time to those people, whether that's, uh, you know, working with myself directly or through um, some of the other resources, materials, help uh, documents that Smoke and Felt now offers through its resource center. Well, I think anybody who's listening who's worked on campaigns, you know, it's it's tough. You know the importance of social media. Like, you get it. You, you can't possibly amplify your message to the level that you could if you would master these tools. But quite often, it's the last thing you have time to do when you're thrust into a campaign. Because I've seen many, many even healthy campaigns, and you go to their social media sites, and it's crickets or they don't exist. And you wonder how they could possibly be successful in this day and age without understanding how all of these work. I'm just finding out from you now that on Twitter, my use of hashtags is, is actually hurting me. You do you use your social media to kind of give out a, a bit of the free goods. You, you, I, not only are you using your superpowers for progressive causes, right? You definitely could have sold your skills to the highest bidder and, and worked with our opponents in capital, I'm sure. But um, on top of that, you do kind of go online and, and give us some free knowledge. And um, it's it's interesting that the way that you kind of are able to step into these campaigns and fill, because it's, it's very eclectic, the work that you do, right? It's not just running a social media account or creating a website. And it's not even all online. I mean, I drew you on here to talk about, we're going to get into it, how effective social media is in these campaigns, you know, whether they're labor run campaigns specific to a social justice movement or, or whatnot. But it, it, that need is certainly there and it's really hard to prioritize. Like, you know how I know how to run a Twitter account, but do I know how to maximize my audience? No, I have no clue. Yeah, I yeah, have I, no clue. And these are not easy things to to resolve, right? Uh, particularly because as these channels have matured, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, in particular, I um, but <laughs> e <laughs> no, but even even newer, uh, you know, the new kid on the block, which is TikTok, right? Of course, uh, which comes with it its own uh, quirks and its own. Um, political and technological baggage, uh, let's say, to put it mildly, um, all of these channels require their own, um, their own approach uh, and their own way to 
for a campaign or for an organization that's coming at it from a political end uh, or a social end um, needs to be thought through uh, quite carefully in order to maximize that. And one of the other things that I've noticed, and you you know you mentioned this uh, a moment ago, is that particularly you know using Twitter as an example, these algorithms that that govern the the main feeds are uh, a complete black box for the most part. However, the one interesting thing that's happened uh, since Elon Musk has taken over Twitter is that he allowed uh, folks to get a peek at the algorithm that governed uh, some of the processes uh, for servicing content. And we were able to glean a little bit uh, from what's available there. Uh, In particular, some of the signals uh, that uh, determine whether or not a particular post gets visibility or not. Whether you're cool Uh, or not. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, basically, right? Uh, unfortunately, when it comes to that particular channel, uh, if your name is not Elon, you are by definition not going to have that same reach. Um, but there are other things, like you mentioned the hashtag stuff, for example, uh, as a mesh, as a method of getting people to subscribe to the paying uh, uh, platform Twitter Blue, they raise that weight of that signal uh, in the algorithm, or at least they're moving to do that. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing how the technical uh, construction of the algorithm on Twitter is no match for the political and social strife that is undergoing the network by the sheer fact of a uh, right-wing reactionary billionaire buying the network and using it at his own personal playground, right? So it's interesting because Twitter in particular is uh, where uh, one uh, network where a lot of political folks, a lot of labor folks, a lot of organizing folks have gone to mobilize and to share information um, on both sides of the, the political spectrum. Uh, but we're, it's interesting to see how those political and social uh, goals or messaging uh, is coming uh, and butting heads with the technical limitations of the network and what that means for future implications of not just Twitter, but of the social media space in general. So we're seeing how that is playing out in real time and how it could you know, potentially completely destroy or devalue the, the, the network from what it once was even a couple of years ago. And not just to demonize Elon, which we're happy to do here, but quite we've seen states use certain blocking techniques, right? So although we can say that social media has allowed certain movements to go global far easier than it could have ever. We get spillover movements. You know, the best example of that would be the Arab Spring. But at the same time, states are also becoming more adept on blocking signals, keywords, and whatnot. So I guess it's important for us, or do you think it's important for us to balance our use of this social media? We've become very dependent online in terms of organizing databases, social media, record keeping, you know, broadcasting, all of that. But um, that leaves us also vulnerable because we also see the state rising up to the occasion and trying to limit the freedoms that exist perhaps online or, you know, having the skills to thwart efforts, you know, revolutionary efforts. Mm -hmm. Do you advise against um, being too heavy, reliant on these tools or perhaps one tool in particular, you know, like TikTok, we don't know the future of TikTok. So people question even getting on it. Twitter, we've seen an exodus of some sort over to Mastodon. Do you diversify? Uh, (laughs) What's what's your thoughts there on 
Yeah, yeah. There, it, it, this is the 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 big question uh, for the moment because social media as a product category uh, across the board is facing this this reckoning, right? And it is something that really was thrust into the spotlight, I would argue, with uh, the 2016 U.S. election when Donald Trump won, um, in particular because there was the the you know a larger punditry conversation was so shocked and surprised that the result was what it was, number one. But number two, we saw from the fallout of that uh, victory, um, Facebook in particular, but social media more generally being, you know, quote unquote, blamed for that election through the spread of misinformation, disinformation, uh, the value of the uh, information being shared on the network through uh, domestic and foreign actors and et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to rehash the whole thing. But that kicked off a broader conversation about how these networks are being used, being influenced beyond a, uh, a, a simple calculation of like amassing followers to grow your email list or, or what have you. Over the last couple of years now in particular, as we've seen this kind of fracturing of the landscape take place uh, with other larger players and of course TikTok being the most ascendant of those uh, from ByteDance, uh, we've seen that uh, diversifying your channels, uh, quote unquote, to help spread that message is beneficial uh, for a number of reasons. You're not locked into a particular algorithm, particular gatekeeper. There are different audiences on different networks and so on. But they all have, and this is something that I think that a lot of folks are, give a lot more weight to uh, these days compared to uh, five, six, seven years ago. They all have the business and corporate um uh, thrust uh, that oftentimes doesn't align with particular political motivations that an organizer might have or a campaign might have. And so you have this inherent tension that uh, I don't think will ever really be resolved because at the end of the day for an organizer, political candidate campaign, what have you, um, they are always going to be uh, playing by the rules of the owner of the platform. And that uh, information, that reach, that distribution can be dialed up or dialed down. And there's a good chance that you as an individual may never really know what that uh, what is happening in the back end of that. So in what that we're seeing box. in the black box, absolutely. Uh, title for the episode. So what we're seeing here is a uh, movement of people who are being more and more cautious about how they present themselves in a certain capacity on these channels, number one. But number two, we're also seeing folks build up parallel networks that are more closed, right? So yes. you, you can imagine Telegram, WhatsApp, uh, DMs, even iMessage, right? Where you have broader or bigger group chats of folks where maybe they start the conversation on a bigger network like TikTok, Twitter, or Instagram, but they then move to these more closed off groups that are away from algorithmic sorting, uh, that are away from any prying sort eyes. of any sort of prying eyes, any sort of pushback. Um, and they, they once they are there, there is a deeper sense of trust, intimacy, connection, because it's a closed city. And the people who are in are the people who are meant to be in. And you can be a little more comfortable sharing uh, more um, specific details about you know, whether it's organizing or even just about yourself to build that level of community. Other apps like Slack and Discord are also uh, thriving in this regard, even if they were uh, started originally for other things like gaming or workplace chat or, or anything of that nature. Do you have we're a favorite that. there? There's always an argument over, are we going to start an, a Slack or are we going to start a Discord? And I am <laughs> I have so many apps on my phone that I have to pay attention to now, but 
I wish we could just get a consensus there. Well, and that's that's the thing is that there 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 probably never will be right. You got to pick you got to pick a horse and ride it. Um, no. I, I like. I know that for, you know, my own personal um, experience, I started with Slack because it came out of a workplace environment, a workplace setting. And so that was more comfortable with it. But uh, Discord has some some really interesting and great multimedia features that uh, I've seen put to to really good use, not just in terms of, you know, people chatting or, you know, people who like to uh, form community around gaming in particular, which was its original thrust, um, but also like journalists, uh, uh, content creators of different varieties and stripes, uh, YouTuber, YouTubers, um, all up and down the board. Um, I'm going to have to pick your brain on that one. We started a Discord. It's very small, but, you know, I know not what I'm doing. No, fair enough. And like a a really great example of this is even just, uh, you know, in the last week uh, where we saw a bunch of uh, legitimate intelligence documents leaked uh, to people. And that leak came through a Discord server um, from uh, from an airman in the United States. So these uh, channels... uh, are uh, uh, definitely uh, being used for, let's say they're not being used for their original intended purpose. Uh, they're being uh, definitely uh, exploded out into these other realms that probably the original creators didn't intend. We often look at, at technology and online spaces as creating uh, a level of accessibility that may not exist without it, right? Your reach is farther. You don't have to leave your house to be able to communicate with people. But at the same time, I feel... The myriad of platforms also act as a barrier. You know, there's we talked about this with Tim Ellis and the need to balance accessibility with security, with, you know, reach. Do you ever find resistance there where, you know, perhaps you're working with somebody on a campaign, maybe they're a little bit old school, and you know, there's resistance to joining that, to open, downloading another app, to learning another algorithm. And, uh, you know, how do you allay those fears or, or how do movements make sure that, you know, keeping up with technology doesn't mean they're leaving people behind? Yeah, great question. Um, that is absolutely a concern. And it's something that uh, uh, in this space, folks have to contend with. Um, there is always that trade-off of, I want to reach people to tell them what's going on to connect with them to learn from them as well however i am a human being limited by time limited by my own understanding my own knowledge i cannot be everywhere at once despite what the marketing of some of these apps might have you believe instead um for me and for smoke and fellow one of the things i i often uh, tell folks or when i'm working with folks uh, at the beginning stages of a campaign is trying to figure out what it is that they want to get out of their communications and their approach, because that'll determine the next steps. Oftentimes, a lot of folks in different capacities try to sandwich in the channel XYZ or app or tool or whatever it is because it's comfortable, it's familiar, maybe it's the new hot thing that's getting a lot of buzz. And that can often be an impediment just as much as it can be um, a benefit. What we need to determine, if we can, if we have this luxury, is to figure out, okay, I want to speak with these people over here because of reasons X, Y, Z. How are they already communicating with each other? What is it that they are already doing naturally, organically? Where have they gravitated to and why? What are they using these particular channels for? Different demographics tend to favor different apps. 
Absolutely. Uh, and we see this uh, time and time again replicated uh, in different spaces. Uh, and each one of those has not just its different uh, different uh, technical hurdles in terms of like, you know, setup. As you said, it's another app I've got to learn. Um, but there are also uh, a different culture that arises within that community, within that app based on that functionality. Right. And you as if you're a candidate, if you're a nonprofit, if you're a member of an institution and you want to reach out to these people uh, because you think you have something to offer or because you want to learn from them, there are trade-offs that you have to make. You can't always expect somebody, uh, particularly people that you have no prior relationship with, to always meet you on your terms, on your turf. Uh, it just doesn't work that way anymore if it ever did. You also need to be a little more flexible in how you want to go out into the world to, to connect with these folks because ultimately you're looking to form or become a member of that community in some capacity. And uh, sometimes that means getting out of that comfort zone a little bit. How do you avoid the echo chamber, though? You know, I I posted in the questions I was going to send to you, and I've kind of refined it a little bit, but I don't still know what I'm asking. I often find the right and the left seem to exist in separate spheres for the most part, save for the odd comment section. But generally... Do you find the right is being more effective in their use of social media or is the algorithm favoring it or is this all my imagination? Because I find that their messaging is being far more pervasive, is resulting in higher rates of mobilization, a higher consumption of misinformation, perhaps. Can you shed any light on that? Sorry for such a vague question, Matt, but you know what I'm getting at, don't you? I do. Uh, and the answer is yes. Um, no. So the 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 question, I think, is is a big one uh, for where we find ourselves, particularly when it comes to digital um, communication and organizing. It's I certainly get the feeling and I understand uh, kind of where you're coming from in that it seems like the right is more effective or more coherent uh, or more tangible, or at least that's how it seems when you're just kind of browsing and scrolling through a different feed on a different app. Um, and there is, I think, some validity to that. I think that uh, in the last number of years in particular, People's um, standard of living has uh, declined. Uh, affordability has declined. Um, their understanding of the uh, nuts and bolts of our society has uh, started to come apart a little bit from what they were told versus what they're getting. Um, and that is not a right or left thing. That is a objective uh, thing in terms of the quality of, of life that we are seeing. And so as that is happening, which it should be noted is the direct result of the policies that were have been implemented uh, over the last number of years, uh, it's no surprise that people are going to turn to these uh, online communities in search in some regard for some answers, for some camaraderie and for some community. And I do think that uh, for as much as I would disagree with a lot of what's being said, the right wing is more effective and more coherent uh, in offering a lot of um, uh, tangible uh, answers to these questions, uh, for better or worse. And it's something that we on the left need to uh, do a better job, more broadly speaking, of, of answering uh, and presenting to folks uh, for any number of concerns in any number of forums. That being said, 
The fact that uh, over the last 30, 40 years, there has been a very deliberate attempt uh, by right-wing institutions and groups to stand up uh, parallel organizations or channels of communication that focus uh, so heavily, if not solely, on uh, emphasizing and elevating the grievance side of things, the anger side of things, um, and the uh, uh, dissolution of uh, a lot of the uh, more, uh, I'll use the word cordial, but that's not even really what I mean, but the back and forth of uh, the conversational aspect where, you know, you and I can disagree, but not necessarily be, you know, blood enemies about it, um, is... uh, also uh, a factor that has played into the elevation of a lot of these voices uh, that we see online. Um, and again, I don't want to keep uh, coming back to this example, but we the fact that Twitter is uh, you know a microcosm of this, I think, is instructive, where we see a lot of that, um, not just right wing, uh, but really reactionary, over the top uh, language and rhetoric being um, posted and elevated and engaged with and reshared um, in uh, particular, really particularly divisive issues um, is uh, not a bug. It's a feature as a result of how these algorithms have been trained to uh, prioritize certain engagement levels. Um, this is also something that we see on Facebook uh, as well to a, a really significant degree, uh, contributing to the spread of certain types of posts, certain types of disinformation and misinformation. Um, and it's something that only gets uh, more and more prevalent because, like I was saying uh, previously, the uh, first mover, the, the, the driving force behind these organizations is uh, engagement by the users, time on site, and usage of the app. And the way that you can dependently crank up that dial is to get folks mad, get folks talking, get folks clicking. Clickbait. Um, exactly. And a, uh, a measured, reasonable conversation between two people about a nuanced issue is 100% not the way you drive those sorts of metrics. So there is that incentive to, to dial up the rhetoric. Talking about dialing up the rhetoric, and I, you know, I don't like politicians that simply use rhetoric. But earlier you talked about, and rightly so, that there is a lot of sanitizing of social media profiles, right? I think the way you worded it is people really think about what they put out online, right? Some channels you can be a little bit more free, but the public facing one, we second guess ourselves. Um, We've done bits on our show on how political office, running for political office, where your social media will be heavily scrutinized, right? Either in the middle of a campaign to try to thwart your efforts, or perhaps you won't even be allowed to run. I don't see this happening on the right. I don't see this second guessing. In fact, you know, they're hate baiting, they're they're using really explosive language and to get a reaction out of people. Do you think perhaps if we were more bold in our messaging or more risky, right, if we spoke our truths a little more freely, that our message would resonate a little bit better, that it would travel, not necessarily to engage in like these hostile back and forth that you often see on Twitter, but simply to get folks to react some way, in any way, other than trying to nitpick over different nuances and have these kind of almost watered down online conversations. Um, 
especially knowing how those systems work. I mean, this isn't face to face. You don't sit down at a table and then start like using these lines of rhetoric, right? That's not even a conversation. People will look at you funny. It doesn't work. But when you're on these mediums, it doesn't have the same rules and it doesn't have the same reactions. So one, I am frustrated by some of the messaging that comes out from really prominent leftist figures that seems bland, that's not enough in your face, that doesn't match the anger we're all feeling. And for me, I feel like you're validating this because I, I say it out of principle is in that we need to create a different narrative. So we should be talking revolutionary talk. So people think it. But also now it would up your algorithm. <laughs> so if you are out there for clickbait, make clickbait. Um, I guess like there's no question in that, but I don't know. I just I wanted to bring that up because I'm looking for answers as to why we're not as effective as we could be on these these mediums. I, I think there is to a certain extent, and, and this is true in, in other sectors as well, not just in the political space too, where there is, depending on the network and depending on the type of person, there is that inherent need to um, self-censor, right? I, I want to be mindful that the, the self that I'm presenting on this platform or in public space is the cleanest version of myself in whatever capacity that means to you, right? Instagram is a, you know, a very obvious example would be like, you know, you only take your photos from the best angles and you use a filter to make yourself look great and all that sort of stuff, right? Even if that's Autumn not glow the- Glow is my favorite. <laughs> that's your go-to? It is. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, when we're talking about it in the in the in the political sense, uh, or in in these other you know spaces where we're trying to actually engage in in conversation and debate and bring or win influence for a particular goal, particular reason, one of the things that I think the right is uh, quite effective on, um, and that we are to a lesser extent, but certainly could be, uh, is the fact that they are unabashed in the fact that they are using these tools for political ends, right? Like that is, that is the, the bread and butter of why we're doing it. Wait, and we're not though? No, 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 no. I, I, mean, I, 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 we, I mean, of course, of course, you know, we are, uh, are folks are <laughs> in, in candidates, candidates, campaigns, uh, labor unions, whatever. Like, of course they are also using it to political ends, but the, uh, figures on the right, and I'm thinking of some of the more prominent folks in, in Canada and the United States in particular, but we see this all across the world in different capacities, is that they are starting from the core place of, you know, I want to see outcome X. Uh, and so I am going to be hard charging in my approach in order to get to that outcome. And the fact that uh, in digital spaces that are governed by algorithms, they happen to like and reward that sort of approach uh, is all the more benefit towards them because it becomes a self-sustaining cycle, right? I say outlandish things, it gets engagement. When I get engagement, it means I can say more outlandish things because I'll get more earned media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that ecosystem has been uh, functioning like that for any number of years. And that's why we see you know, uh, uh, prominent right-wing figures who say uh, silly, dumb, outlandish things only get more and more clout, more and more popular, uh, more and more airtime, etc. Um, when we are turning that lens to folks on the left and what that means, I think there, you know, there is still very much a way that you can do that without just being a boisterous jerk, right? And just spouting off and saying a bunch of nonsense. Um, but 
you have to start again with that earnest ability of I want to get to objective X um, and everything else. <laughs> we got to get whether anyone to agree on what objective X is. Well, th- this is the thing is that hashtag eat on, the rich <laughs> on the uh, I think on uh, for folks on other the other side of the spectrum. Right. Uh, and this is not just in digital communication spaces, but kind of a, across the board. And I know it's something that you've spoken about at length uh, any number of times along with other folks is that that so that agreement, you know, whatever that is, uh, I think there is that more that more broadly speaking that exists uh, to a bigger degree um, with folks on the other side of the spectrum than perhaps with folks on the left. And that can be frustrating uh, because it leads to uh, more cohesion on one side and more fragmentation on the other. Um, Ironically, because there is that broader agreement, I think, on the right, that allows for or creates space for folks, individual actors, small groups, uh, what have you, to pursue their own lines of communication and outreach in order to get to that goal, right? So you've got, I think, a, a, a much more cohesive uh, web of connections and communications across all of these different apps that allow folks to self-organize or communicate or maintain in a way that can be sometimes a little more difficult for folks on the left to achieve that same level of parity. You know, I'm glad you had an answer, but I don't think it's the answer I wanted to hear but at least it gives us somewhere to work from. But definitely that's something we struggle with on the left is is finding one thing we can agree on and forcing that issue in the way well, that I'm curious what what is the answer you were you were hoping uh, hoping to hear? That it was just my imagination that the right was somehow getting their message across to wider, broader channels. And, you know, that it was just maybe that just we weren't feeling so bad. I, I, I wouldn't be that I, w- I, I, I would I would I would step mode. back from that. No, I, w- I, I would step back a bit from being that um, disparaging or, or despondent. It's not like nothing is happening and no progress is being made. Uh, I, I, I can certainly attest to that. Um, I work with a lot of good folks. I'm very fortunate to have uh, connections with a, a, a number of people who are doing good work, who believe in the work that they're doing, and who are making honest-to-goodness connections and real progress uh, uh, towards uh, some noble goals. So, Do you want to name like, drop some good folks that you work with? Are you allowed to do that? Like, I, 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 I don't want to name drop, uh, oh. because largely because I can't for any number of reasons, uh, but the... the <laughs> The folks that I, I, I will say, uh, and you'll have to just take my word for it, that a lot of the folks that I work with uh, are are doing good things, believe they are doing good things, um, and are working very hard to see them come to fruition despite it being an uphill struggle sometimes. Um, what I will say, and and this is uh, you know not just for, for our conversation but for all the good folks listening, is that the people who, this might sound cliche, but the people who have the loudest voices, which is oftentimes people who are on the right, who are shouting about whatever outrage of the day is happening, um, that is not the whole story. Um, could we on the left be a little better about uh, proclaiming our achievements and our progress and what we're doing to help people on the ground, on their day-to-day lives, wherever they might be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but just because somebody on the right stands up and yells X uh, doesn't mean that uh, they have all the momentum and all the mobility. 
we need to get a little better about connecting with folks and making our successes known uh, and and using that momentum to build more and more about it. Um, but it's not like uh, we need to, you know, uh, go uh, sit in the corner because we're we're not making any leeway in any capacity. I, I don't want folks to get that impression. It can be frustrating. Uh, it can be tiring. Uh, it can be draining. Um, but that's because the work is good and necessary and we need to keep up that momentum. Otherwise, we do seed uh, the ground in both digital and actual spaces to uh, people on uh, on the right. I wanted to ask you a very kind of specific professional question. Uh, right now, there's a petition going around trying to get the NDP to have their next federal convention hybrid. And I once call you for help on making an event more accessible in we are still in a pandemic. People are poor and can't travel. The idea behind a hybrid event is that folks who want to go in person can go in person and participate just as meaningfully as the people online, right? They're not just simply viewing a convention that they can vote in it, they can speak in it. I've been to events that have incorporated these features, some better than others. I'll be honest, you know, some are absolutely horrible. The online participation is a joke. But there's validity in making these demands. You don't have to opine on that part. I'm not asking if you sign the petition, don't worry. But from a professional standpoint, can you explain the benefits and maybe the barriers to now ensuring both online and in-person participation? Because it seems like the bar has been set now as we created more tools and got used to different tools during COVID, like Zoom and all the things that have been meeting owls and all kinds of things that have been set up to help us do this. Can you, can you speak to that? Because I feel for some of these folks trying to be able to participate in something that can be such an economic barrier. Like there, to me, there's just seems no excuse that we can't be more inclusive, but you know, maybe, you know, some barriers that caught co- is cost. Is it difficult? What can you say on the matter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, without speaking with to to specifically uh, to any one convention or event or or what have you, um, it seems like a no brainer that in the last three four years in particular that if I can uh, run a business, if I can telecommute to work, if I can earn a living, if I can order food, if I can get entertainment, if I can do. All of the things that I need in order to have an enjoyable day, an enjoyable week from my home uh, and participate actively in society in any number of other sectors, uh, it seems like there should not be any significant barriers in this day and age in order to do or run a hybrid convention and do it well uh, to accommodate folks uh, who, who want that accommodation. Is it hard? Yeah, absolutely. There are any number of technical hurdles and limitations that folks uh, need to solve uh, in order to do that. Um, but there, it's not like these are unknowable problems and it's not like we collectively don't have the experience of the last number of years in working with these tools in order to help facilitate those sorts of connections and that sort of participation. Um, and I speak very generally about that. If you ask me, hey, how do I solve this particular problem? I might not have an answer for you. 
because there are uh, folks who have uh, more broader expertise in any one of these, you know, video conferencing and convention tools than I might have. Um, however, the reason why these tools have been developed and why they've been so widely deployed over the last number of years is precisely to solve these problems. Not everybody can always be in the same room at once. However, their input should be just as valued uh, and just as uh, useful as people who are in the room. Just because they're not there doesn't mean they can't participate, shouldn't be able to participate, box, boxed out for whatever reason, whatever it is. And so if we're wanting to be or get ourselves to a place where we welcome that sort of broader and inclusive participation in folks, we want to hear from those voices um, who cannot make it to the uh, actual building uh, for whatever reason, that's that's fine with me. There's a problem. If if we're doing this, you got to be able to solve the problem, right? Otherwise, what are we what are we even talking about here? If you if you can't solve this, how are we going to tackle anything that is much more uh, grandiose in nature, more structural? Um, these like are like run government. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, mean. I said it. You didn't <laughs> look. Uh, but but like I mean, it, it's it's worth noting that I think these are. Uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a, uh, this is part of a, a, a bigger conversation that we see play out in a number of different digital forums in particular, which is that uh, in order to speak or connect or uh, work within the community in whatever channel we're talking about, whether it's a digital convention or a WhatsApp group or Telegram or TikTok, you know, whatever it is, there is in some capacity uh, this desire to make a particular process, particular channel, particular workflow that people have to go through in order to have uh, buy-in from the rest of the community, uh, in order to participate in whatever capacity. And I think a lot of times um, that is uh, a hindrance. Uh, and we, we box out a lot of good voices who would otherwise uh, contribute in really meaningful ways because of those uh, barriers, uh, structural, technological, uh, what have you. So when it comes to a convention or any sort of event like that, uh, we should make a concerted effort to make it better uh, for people. And if you're able to participate in other sectors of society uh, in a hybrid way or in a digital way, um, and that's certainly not going away anytime soon, then the question should be not do we do it or do we not do it. The question is how do we make it better and better than everybody else so that the people who want to participate in that way are able to come here rather than be pushed into other circles instead. Um, because that is going to be, I think, a real problem. Uh, and we've seen that play out in different capacities already uh, time and time again. So you're going to sign the petition. <laughs> I'll leave you alone. Um, so I know... Smoke and Fell offers their services to campaigns big and small. The reality is not everyone can call you for help. So before we go, can you for free throw out maybe two tidbits for a grassroots campaign? You know there's millions of them. There are two or three people. They want to stop development on X. They need all their neighbors' help. What are the bare minimums that they should be doing in terms of social media. You don't have to plan their whole campaign in this next 10 seconds, and I'm going to give you the answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, but, you know, where should they definitely, definitely be putting at least some of their spoons, some of their energy? Because it's it's sparse, right? Absolutely. Um, 
I would start with a decidedly low tech solution. And this if this applies and is uh, uh, something that folks are able to do, I would start here first. And that is talk to people around you. Don't necessarily you mean like jump. on the phone, like or in actually, person? actually directly talking to people. I know it's a novel idea, but that is that is where I would start, and that's where, uh, if possible, I encourage folks to start because otherwise, uh, the if you just jump right to oh gosh, I need to make a TikTok channel or a page, or I need to uh, open up this channel or that channel, then you might get a lot of views on uh, uh, your post that is um, uh, that you know bounces around the network and that's great that can help raise awareness that can reach people you wouldn't or otherwise reach etc but again I want to you know bring it back down to earth and and have and encourage folks to think about okay what is the actual objective that we're trying to do with this campaign Wh- whatever it is if you're trying to uh, stop something if you're trying to put up pressure against something if you're trying to uh, build a community capacity for something whatever that thing is then work backwards to figuring out what sort of channel capacity works for you. There, are, I would, I would uh, not be surprised, and in fact, I've seen this uh, in a number of times already, where the people that are you know within close proximity uh, to organizers or folks working on a particular campaign have people within you know a five kilometer radius even that not only agree with what it is you're trying to do, but also already have an audience uh, on these channels that you can then leverage because you win over that particular person and they become a member of your community, of your campaign, of your cause. So the low-tech solution, first and foremost, as a starting point, would be to connect with your neighbors, connect with people in the community if it's possible, uh, to start to build up that that grassroots organizing. Knock on some doors? Like, you know, I don't know if if we're still uh, if we're still doing that. I think it's pretty effective. I would encourage folks to do the same. I, I think there's you, you know you that, can step it's back a brand new. And you can step back a few feet. I mean, I campaigned during COVID. I think deep canvassing and talking door to door is the only way you're going to reach everyone. I mean, you can you can stand out on a street corner at Main Street a little bit, but. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. Don't uh, uh, don't be discouraged because of that. And I think a lot of folks, it's. Um, you know, if, if they've never done it before, it's something new to them, they can be intimidated by that for any number of reasons, right? Uh, and that is that is a, a internal hurdle that folks uh, need, like, can get over by, as you know, you get over it by doing it. Um, and the secondary effect of that is that you meet some lovely people who are your neighbors in your community, and you yourself grow your understanding of what it is that you're trying to do and who you're trying to do it with, not just some theoretical uh, extrapolation of, oh gosh, wouldn't it be nice if uh, we could do this for the community? Uh, If you want to do something for your neighbors and for uh, the folks around you, the best way to start is by uh, connecting with them directly and leaving the digital world uh, as a support of that, not as the primary touch point of that. All right. So let's say we do venture onto a platform. Is there a good starting point for, is there one platform that seems to help grassroots more than the other? I know I was told, you know, if you're a podcaster, Twitter is where it's at, you know, but do you have a short answer for that? Or is that just? (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's uh, a great question because you do have to, especially for, for smaller campaigns or organizations where you do have uh, limited resources, time and uh, staff, um, or volunteer power, um, how are you going to make the most with the, the little that you have to work with? Um, 
I would say that uh, if if you're starting a campaign uh, or uh, uh, want to reach a certain objective uh, tomorrow, um, I would start assuming you're already talking to people in the in the community directly. Uh, TikTok is a great example of that um, because I myself uh, have experience with this, and we've seen no shortage of other examples where you see how fast a video um, can bounce around and get a significant uh, viewership. Are all those viewers going to be localized within one area? No, certainly not. But what you can do is leverage that visibility if you can generate it consistently into other avenues, including earned media, press coverage, et cetera, uh, if, you, uh, if you target it correctly. So I think TikTok is a great example of uh, how you can uh, get your word out with pretty low yield, low effort. You don't have to be super polished to be on there and, and uh, connect with folks. Well, that's good. Um, so <laughs> number one, um, and I know you're, you're on there as well. I get your stuff all the time. It's great. Um, so that's number one. Um, number two uh, is I would encourage folks to also have an audience that you can speak with directly uh, in order to uh, bypass any sort of algorithmic sorting or censorship. Um, and that the easiest, easiest example of that is a newsletter uh, with an email list that you uh, can encourage folks to sign up with, uh, and then you can talk to them directly, even if or you get- or a podcast, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, no, but like it depends on, like, again, going back to this idea of meeting people where they are, right? Not everybody wants to read uh, 500 words every week about what's going on with the campaign. Some folks, you know, I've, I've done this in other campaigns as well, where, you know, you set up a weekly 10-minute breakdown. Here's what's going on. Here's what we're doing. Here's what's next. Uh, and here's how you can get involved. And not, not everything needs to be as involved as a 60-minute you know, back and forth, one-on-one conversation. It can be leveraged in other ways, but still communicate the same ideas to the same or a uh, segment of people that you're trying to to reach. So I'm that's getting free consulting. Two. That's really what's happening here. <laughs> so, well, you can if you Santiago, uh, you know, take notes. You can start to um, uh, imagine the 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 flow chart, right, of how this works. Of you know, I've got my my big idea, my big campaign, my goal. I've got the community outreach aspect over here. I've got the uh, interactive medium, whether that's the the podcast or the uh, newsletter over here with the owned audience of people who want to hear from me and who opt in. And then I've got the social channels of wherever they are who are allowing me to spread out my conversations and my discussions more broadly to a bigger audience and how all those things work together in a flywheel to help uh, uh, drive your, your campaign forward. And I will say one last thing. Um, as part of our mandate at Smoke and Felt to help to uh, drive this, um, we have a uh, resource hub uh, called Smoke and Felt Academy or SNF Academy. Uh, and on there, we have a number of tools, resources, workbooks, downloads available for free uh, to campaigners and organizers that they can use to help kickstart some of these initiatives and get them thinking on this track in their own right. Uh, and in fact, I will uh, uh, pre-announce this a little bit. It's not quite ready just yet, uh, but we are working uh on leveraging uh, free Notion uh, tools and templates for folks to download to actually run their entire campaign and manage uh, their messaging and outreach services all within one toolkit. That is something I'm really, really excited about. Been working on it for a few months Me now. Too. Uh, That's it's it's been it's been in the works for a while. We've been beta testing it with a few different organizations, getting some great feedback from the field, um, and I'm really looking forward to launching it a little later this spring. 
Well, I'm going to be sure to include links to Smoke and Felt as well as the Academy there in the show notes. So if you're listening, just check those out and you can read more about what Matt does and take advantage of all those tools that he's handing us because we all could be a little bit more effective on these mediums. Lord knows I could. No wonder people call you for help, Matt, because <laughs> it's 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 a lot, especially I'm not a spring chicken anymore. And uh, I'm, I'm glad the youth are figuring it out as well. So I appreciate you taking the time to come on here and, and hash things out with us, provide a little bit of free consulting for our, most of our audience, you know, are out there to make change. They just some of them need better tools or somewhere to start and you know, social media just seems that that one tool that's completely accessible. So are your neighbor's doors for the most part. Um, yeah. Thank you, Matt. Oh, you're, you're very, very welcome. Thank you so much for, for inviting me on and for having a, a chat. Uh, this was uh, a lot of fun. And I hope that uh, for uh, the folks that are listening, uh, if they take away any uh, one little tidbit of information that helps get them even one step closer to uh, where they want to be and how uh, we can leverage these tools to bring about some you know, positive progressive change uh, at any level uh, from the community you live in right on through to uh, the national discourse, I think I will have uh, done my job. And I'm really, really thankful for that. And that was just an hour out of your day. Think of what you can get done with the rest of the day. Now it's Friday. Take a break. All right. My mentions are blowing up, Jessica. It's crazy. <laughs> we'll talk later, Matt. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.